This conference is all about bringing together that powerful triumvirate, people, capital, and ideas. In 2015, the Paris Climate Accords set the target of limiting global warming to well below two degrees. To reduce the disastrous effects of climate change, we need a whole economy approach. Business, government, and finance working together, taking swift action to reduce emissions, supporting and championing the innovators in cleantech, promoting leadership that sees decarbonization as an opportunity, an opportunity for innovation, an opportunity for global collaboration, an opportunity to build a better world for the future generation. The people here today, the people driving this change. Welcome to Innovation Zero. Mostly retirement schemes, pension funds, endowments, central banks. And they are supposed to be the nice people. They're supposed to be the long-term investors because very often the asset owners, especially the pension funds on their board, they have trustees, board members, which are to a large extent a reflection of civil society. So many of the board members, even the multi-billion dollar Canadian American giants on their board, you have, you know, municipal servants, nurses, doctors, school teachers. So ironically, it's not something we, we're very familiar with because we think of, you know, big pension funds as ultra capitalist, but in reality, they are of course capitalists. They're in, in there in here to make money, but on their board are people who are really lower middle class, middle class, very often, you know, sort of center left, labor orientated, Democrats, progressive. And for a long time, they didn't really flex their fiduciary muscles. What does it mean? So they had pent up power. So by law, trust law and other laws, in many countries, including Britain, you know, every quarter, every semester, every year, they had the power to put pressure on their own CIO or to put pressure on the asset management companies and investment banks to which they gave mandates. Very often, for many reasons, they didn't do so forcefully until two, three, four, five years ago. So really, now there is, there's really a big acceleration, both in emerged, industrialized, thinking of Verena and emerging developing markets, I'm thinking of Yale, in all of these countries, the trustees are becoming more vocal, which is having a real impact on the way asset managers behave because for the big, you know, gigantic Carlisle's, KKR's, Goldman Sachs of the world, their number one client are the pension funds and sovereign funds. Really, they're like by far the biggest clients of all the world's biggest private equity, venture capital, fund management firms. So, of course, if you're in the business of finance, you need to take care of your clients. And the fact that the clients themselves have shifted when it comes to ESG finance, climate finance governance, is having an impact on, on the whole ecosystem. And perhaps you can start, uh, you know, by asking, uh, you know, Gail, to present herself in two minutes, who is she? What does she do in life? Okay, so I was wondering now, am I a teacher or a municipal worker? Because <laughs> I'm definitely one of, um, one of the normal people, right? But I have been fortunate that I, I've had an opportunity to do loads of different things. Today, I'm sitting here as chair of something called the Shell Foundation, the Shell Foundation drives access to energy, renewable energy, 
and renewable mobility solutions in the global south. So that's one thing I do. The other thing I do is I'm a non-exec on a couple of boards, one large foods business in Africa, one large apparel business, which is the largest supplier to Nike, Lululemon, et cetera, all your clothes, headquartered in Sri Lanka, but working in most um, emerging markets. One, a, um, a bank that uh, funds large agriculture all around the world, and then a few other charities, right? But why am I relevant to this conversation at all? Because I spent 30 years with Unilever. I spent four years with Old Mutual. I have then spent the last 10 years trying to get capital to move to a way not that it can just decarbonize the grid in the UK, but can solve some of the really big issues that are coming down the line. And, you know, the Solon project or a Humber are going to be kind of irrelevant if the 4 billion people that are hanging around down south don't find a way to get energy and to consume in a way that's not going to disrupt the whole global whatever. <laughs> so that's why I'm here, yeah? Your modesty honors you, and I think it's partly my fault also because um, I think I stressed, you know, pension funds, sovereign funds, central banks, but endowments and foundations are very much also asset owners. And in some countries, the biggest asset owners are actually endowments and, and foundations. And it's the case, in, so I think, in some African, Asian jurisdictions where you have, you know, some gigantic endowments who are as big, if not bigger, than the pension fund. Verena? Hello, my name's Verena Chave. I'm actually a lawyer by training, but I specialize in ESG and sustainability. I work with a lot of very large, international, well-known asset managers, uh, whether they're in the form of pure asset managers or maybe parts of large banking groups. So obviously, I see this from a slightly different perspective. What I would say, though, of course, is that we are all, or many of us, we're employees. And therefore, we also, we are the workers. And so we do have a vested interest in what's happening with our pensions, let alone what my clients might be doing with it. So obviously, my perspective on this will be from a much more corporate angle. And I have to say, having worked in this for many, many years, I can tell you that the corporate angle has actually developed a soft side. Obviously, they're about making money. Asset managers are, you know, they have fiduciary duties. They have a very clear mandate about making sure that they bring in as much money as possible to make sure that the pensions are paid on time and continue to be paid for maybe, you know, centuries. But they have developed a soft side, and we'll talk about that maybe a bit more later on. And you say soft side, but uh, which is all fair. I mean, like, but isn't one of the drivers of that shift these mega lawsuits? You're a lawyer. These gigantic, you know, climate finance lawsuits we're seeing in New York, Washington D.C., etc. I think you've caught me out already. I'm sort of trying to sell the industry, but to be honest, the answer is yes. The driver here is essentially regulation. Um, Nobody should be actually unclear about this. Left to their own devices, rampant capitalism probably would just continue doing what it thought was the right thing without actually having too much regard to us. I say that my clients, you know, they know I think that. They know that I'm quite open about it. But you're absolutely right. The driver for all of this, Nick, is actually regulation, plus also the groundswell from us as individuals saying that we actually want to see change. So we as pensioners or future pensioners, 
we must never forget that we have got power today, far more so than perhaps we did historically. That's great. And back to Gail, I think, you know, you, you, you were at Durban, right? At the famous Durban conference. So uh, you know the history, you know, I think Bismarck said like sausages, but you don't want to know, don't, you don't want to know how it's, they're being made. So you were at Durban, the first, I think, big conference where governments and corporates joined uh, in the dark corridors and did lobbying and stuff and, and horse trading and finally came with embryonic, small guidelines, etc. So you've seen things change since Durban. Do you think that's really in the past two, three years with COVID? Okay. So the reference to Durban, in case you didn't get it, I'm South African, right? <laughs> so I spent, uh, I grew up in South Africa, spent a lot of my life in South Africa. And then I was moved with Unilever to work uh, globally. And that's what I do now. But I'm still very linked to South Africa. Have things moved? They have moved enormously, right? Ten years ago, when I was talking to old mutual investment mandate, mandated funds, right, they went, what are you talking about, right? We have to get out of coal. Are you nuts, right? This is never going to happen. Now they are saying, oh, right, we know we need to move, but we don't know how to do that without destroying all of the jobs of all of our members, right, which is a significant issue. And I'm going to talk about the just transition because I think there's a lot of fairy dust around the just transition because it ain't happening justly, right? So that's the first thing. Secondly, you know, and, and I hate to keep on saying like 10 years ago, but I think it is relevant, right? So 10 years ago when we spoke about, you know, the debate was still is climate change happening, right? That was the debate. The debate was, you know, will consumers pay for it? The debate, which is still a debate, by the way, the debate was, is there sufficient awareness and who's responsible, right? Is it, is it we can't move because uh, consumers or customers don't want it, or is it regular? I think a lot of that debate's gone, right? A lot of it has. Some of it's only PR, but I think a lot of that debate's gone. The issue is that, I'm going to use a very colloquial phrase. Right now, the rubber has hit the road, right? All of the net zero commitments, all of the wonderful decarbonization pathways, all of the grand things that all of the companies and are saying they're going to do, people have realized it's really hard. And I'm going to give you a small little example if I can, right? Because there are unintended consequences all over the place. So... You will know that the ECB has fantastic regulation around climate change scenarios, what you need to do with it, right? Um, there are companies now, there are banks now, who potentially have to disinvest from farming across the world, right? Which means that you're going to disinvest from farming in North America, Australia, and Africa, because of the carbon footprint of those, you're going to affect food, right? And if you affect food and food provision, forget, I'd love to see how the vertical farms, and I think they're very important, but I'd love to see how they are going to feed, you know, 2 billion people in Africa who need staples, because that ain't going to work, right? So we're under pressure to fundamentally 
change our portfolios and disinvest in certain areas because of the carbon uh, uh, impact of our financed emissions. What does that mean, though? Who's going to take up that space? Because someone has to, because yeah. someone has to eat. Yeah. Right. So has it changed? I think it has in terms of awareness and commitments. And has it changed enough that we are actually working around solving some of the most intractable dilemmas that we actually aren't willing to speak about? No. <laughs> I agree. And um, I was actually myself in, in, um, in Africa and Asia recently. And um, when you talk to people, you know, be they sovereign funds, central banks, pension funds, or just people in the street, they view the West increasingly as a as, um, cynical verging on evil. And I think it's hard for us to understand it because, you know, we're here in Paris, London, and we think that we're great and uh, we think that we're doing ESG and they view us as cynical monsters. And, and the reason is simple. If you look at, you know, the prime ministers and the presidents of Europe two, month, two, two years ago, 18 months ago, some of them went to Cape Town, Johannesburg, uh, Abidjan, Cairo, lecturing the people of, you know, the governments of Angola, Egypt, Mozambique about the evilness of natural gas and how, you know, the banks in Paris and the city of London would stop funding these dirty, you know, fossil fuels and how they would stop, you know, funding, uh, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the other, you know, chemicals used by farmers, let's say, in Africa. And all of a sudden, Russia invaded Ukraine and the same prime ministers and the same presidents rushed to Pretoria and Abidjan and Cairo telling them we need more natural gas, you know, and, and so, and, and the same is happening now, you know, many currencies in emerging markets, South America, Africa, Asia, are collapsing now, not because anything their local finance minister or central banks did wrong. They're collapsing because of things decided by the Federal Reserve Board in Washington, by the Bank of England in London, and by the ECB in Frankfurt, so indirectly, what you know, European, American central bankers are doing, or treasury department bureaucrats, is having an impact on the currencies of, of many African countries. And all of a sudden, they cannot buy food for their children. And on top of that, you have you know, city of London bankers lecturing them about you know, that fertilizers are pollutant. Right, and I'm going to tell you why we shouldn't put them in a corner, right? Because we're talking pension funds. I mean, talking pension funds that really have to, I mean, for me, I've probably got another, what, 20 years, right? And, and I think I'm going to be okay with my pension fund, right? But actually, most pension funds are now looking at, you know, have we got, have we got the right kind of funding, the right kind of risk management to put in place for the next 40, 50 years, right? In, in even 20 years, right? We are going to have India and Africa with four and a half billion people, right? We'll have, you know, the humble will be humming, which is lovely, but we'll have a really small group of people. What are we going to do? And that's why I want to get to the S, which I don't think we're speaking enough about, right? Even the S within our own, I'm going to call our own country being the UK, right? Being excited about innovation zero when it's purely clean tech and it's going to make the rich people richer is not going to solve things. We are going to land up with much greater social problems that will affect all of our pensions. But it can be, it can be social innovation. 
It can be social, but or we have governance or governance innovation. Exactly. One of the things that we're hearing here is exactly the dilemma that a lot of my clients are facing right now, because actually, strangely enough, they don't live in little bubbles. I don't act for any governments, but I do act with a lot of everyday pension funds who are actually frequently being lobbied by their pensioners. As I said, we all can and should. The problem they've got is that we're actually in a major transition phase, and you will have heard or read about transition management of assets. This is causing a lot of people a lot of difficulty in my client sector because you can't move the money that easily. You have, if you're actually trying to do some good and you are actually looking at the E, the S and the G, everyone gets the headlines with the E, but the S is the bit that the rest of us are probably actually everyday people. In the States, for example, S is the driver of everything to do with sustainability and ESG. That's the bit that the investors are interested in. I'm not talking about the big corporates, but the ordinary everyday people are investing and their pensioners behind you know, behind the scenes. And that is actually leading to some quite interesting outcomes where transition management is something that is actually being explained far more than we ever thought we'd have to. I help my clients write a lot of papers about that because they themselves, bearing in mind that actually asset managers are human beings, and you may have your views about capitalists and all the rest of it, but fundamentally they're people. They have also worked out if you walk away from all of this, the hardship that you can create is probably worse than the benefit that you were trying to achieve. Now, that's not something they can talk about terribly much because actually that's not part of their fiduciary duty. But these are the debates that are going on inside. And therefore, one of the things that we have got to be conscious of is that actually when you are considering these matters, you can't just look at one little bit. And this is why when we talk about ESG, it's a shorthand for something that has been called many things over the last three decades. I've been involved in it. But the point is, what you've got is a situation where you cannot take one thing on its own if you're going to get the outcome that we are all praying for. And if you're not really just hoping for, but you get yeah, my sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and um, another bias that we all have Europeans, and I think London is still part of Europe, you know, culturally and geographically. So we're biased a little bit towards the South, towards, you know, Africa, Asia, and Latin America. But we're also biased, as Verena said, about Washington, D.C. and the U.S. because culturally, legally, investment-wise, they often behave in a very different way. And I fully agree with Verena. In America, whatever ESG there is, it is really 70% S. But S focusing on workers' rights. So it's not that much women's rights or education. It's really your average, you know, moustached worker working in, in a factory in Pennsylvania. So these guys, the unions, so labor organizations, trade unions in America have a big, big impact when it comes to ESG. And so their perspective is really that of the working class. So we just teamsters, you know, truck drivers or so truck drivers, factory workers have a big impact on ESG in America. And the second letter is G, corporate governance, annual meetings. And that leaves 5 or 10% E in the US. Whereas we in Europe, we tend to view ESG as a climate thing. And it's, they flip completely the, the ratio in America. And why does it matter? Because 60% of the world's assets 
including European stocks and British bonds, are owned by American pension funds. So the share of voice that they have worldwide is huge. Many of the companies listed in the world belong to them, even here in Europe. Right. So picking up on that, I, I don't want us to land up. I don't want to leave this in, oh, no. I don't, we thought we were saving the world in this tent, but we're not, right? So two things. First, that is correct. And, and for those of you, I'm sure all everyone here is, you know, you will understand the pushback that's coming against ESG now in American quarters, right? Not yet. And and that pushback, particularly around pe around pension funds and investment, is um, it, it's not driven by people being stupid, right, or or naive or unwilling to accept climate. It's driven by the fact that these workers all work in places where. Fossil fuels still are, are driving, you know. But I wanted to talk about a couple of things that certainly the Shell Foundation is doing, right? So we we basically seed solutions like this that can, um, you know, make a huge difference largely in the global south. One of them um, is something called uh, DREC, which is an opportunity for corporates to offset their commercial um, uh, fossil fuel-based buying with renewable energy certificates anywhere in the world, right? That means if someone like, in fact, Netflix is a customer, Netflix can buy renewable energy certificates to offset what they, so those are, but anywhere in the world, not just in their county, not just in their country. It's a really good initiative. It's called DREC. We've, we see things like this, and then hopefully someone along the line will come up with followed funding. A second, we, we've, we've seeded about four funds that are particularly looking at things like asset management to allow people. So here's a stat for you, which is fantastic, right? So in Southern Africa, there are 30 million diesel gensets, right? I'm going to get down to really simple things now. That means your electricity doesn't work. I mean, you might know there are 2.8 billion people in the world that can't switch on the lights reliably. And now my dear old country has got the same problem, right? So they can't switch on the lights. So what do they do? Right? They need to do something. So what do they do? They buy a diesel generator. Why a diesel generator? Well, because they can fill the thing up and it runs. Yes, you could say, well, you know, put in solar and, you know, store it. and Sure, you know, if, if it's not going to happen right now, right? But if we, and that's 350 to 500 gigawatts, right? If we can take a little bit of this money we're talking about, right? And actually facilitate diesel gensets to become dual. We save so much carbon and our impact, in fact, any impact that we have in countries like South Africa, Nigeria, Saudi Arabia, of course, right? Where you're displacing highly carbonized sectors will give you seven to eight times leverage versus what you get if you're making our building more efficient here. And the so examples the that Gail said will all be in a primer we'll publish in a week's time, and Innovation Zero will circulate that primer with you guys. I want to conclude on a piece of optimism, because we we're very pessimistic about what we said earlier, so a ray of hope for Britain, because um, people think that post-Brexit, that's uh, 
the red dot here is the overall size of the assets owned collectively by all pension funds in England. So that's the English pension fund industry in terms of, you know, if you take all the bonds, private equity, venture capital, real estate that UK pensions have, that's that bubble. And on the x-axis, you have expected economic growth in the next three, five years. So here's Germany and France. What does it mean, the gray dot and the black dot? That French pension funds have tiny assets. They're microscopic. Italian pension funds are very small. The pension fund superpowers are really countries like Australia, Canada, Holland, England, Britain. The US bubble should be twice as big. So America alone represents 50, 60% of the world's assets, of the world's money. Why is it important? You've all heard about these Californian banks collapsing in the past uh, four months. The balance sheets of banks is shrinking, even here in Britain and Europe. So if you want, if you want basically money, if you're an investor, if you're a, an entrepreneur, clean tech, green tech, whatever, you will have lesser access to banks. Interest rates are rising. Where will the money come from for future investment? It will come to a large extent from these guys, pension funds and sovereign funds. And what's really good for Britain post-Brexit is there are only two pension superpowers in Europe, Holland and Britain. And so really, it's a big asset. And I think the government right now, and even labor, you know, that there's a big consensus in Britain to tap into that huge pool of money that you guys have pension funds, and the yellow arrow means that we believe, we the World Pension Council, that it's a big edge that the UK economy has. So yes, in the short term, economic growth now in the UK is less than 1%. The situation is bad, inflation is high. But if you're patient, patient capital, if you can wait two, three, four years, the growth trajectory of Britain will be good to a large part because of huge pools of pension and insurance money. So the city of London has a big role to play. On the other hand, sadly, I'm French, but countries like Italy, France, and, and, and Germany will, won't do that good. They will not do that great in the coming years because they have small pension funds. Another reason why Europe won't be, won't be in good shape in the future is because of all the laws, all the laws and regulations, including you know, Basel, solvency, which is really a self-inflicted <laughs> uh, you know, pain. They're putting, you know, lots of regulation. They're hindering their own insurance companies and pension funds. So for all these reasons, I think, you know, if you believe in innovation, long-term investment, creativity, helping entrepreneurs, there's a lot of money here in the city. So you don't need to go to, uh, you know, to faraway lands. If you just focus on five or six countries, you know, Canada, Australia, Britain, Singapore, this is where 80 or 90% of the world's pool of money is. And being a UK entrepreneur is great because you just cross the street and you have pension investors waiting to give you capital. Join me in thanking our great panel here tonight. To register your interest in attending, exhibiting, sponsoring, or speaking at Innovation Zero 2024, please go to www.innovationzero.com. We look forward to meeting you at Olympia in London on the 30th of April and the 1st of May 2024.